This is Meditate and Conversate, a podcast for those interested in wellness and enlightenment. My name is Lindsay Barusing. I am your host, and today's guest is Hannah Kai, an Ayurvedic health counselor, Vedic life coach, and yoga philosophy teacher. We'll discuss a little bit about how Ayurveda is still applicable to your everyday life, even thousands of years after its inception, and the same with yogic philosophy, why it's more important now than ever. So first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. Yes, um, we share a lot of common interests, but I think Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people that don't know how these ancient healing systems apply to modern life. So will you Mm -hmm. give me a little bit of background on how you got into, um, first of all, Ayurvedic counseling? Absolutely. So since I was really young, I was always interested in spirituality, Eastern thought and healing. I think I probably had what's referred to in Vedic philosophy as like a samskara or a past life impression. I just felt like this connection um, to yoga and to Eastern thought. So I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, and there's not a whole lot of of that in Iowa. Um, But I remember like I was a cross country runner in high school and I got into yoga. And I remember just thinking, wow, there's something about this that's really sacred, you know? And I wasn't sure why, I wasn't sure what it was, but it really resonated with me. And then I ended up moving to Hawaii when I was 18 to go to college and kind of deepened my spiritual journey during that time and really started exploring yoga a lot and trying different types of yoga. And I just knew, like, I felt it in my body that this is, this is really profound, but it hadn't yet sunk in why. And then I ended up moving to Melbourne, Australia to do my master's degree. And I kind of followed like a calling, like I felt like this deep calling to go there. And when I ended up in Australia, I had kind of like been through a lot of material things in life. Like I lived in Paris for a while and really enjoyed life. And I was like, hmm, like there's, there's just so much more to life than, than this. And I really was yearning at that moment to go on a journey within and really connect deeply. So it was in Australia where I discovered a devotional path of yoga, the bhakti yoga path that um, really gave a lot of context to why yoga was so important and so meaningful. It really brought a lot of the philosophy in. And I had studied Buddhism. I had um, been really into Sufism. But what I was learning um, when I was like reading the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas, it just made so much sense and resonated with me so deeply. And then also during this time, I discovered Ayurveda. And I hadn't heard of it before, but a friend of mine who was also like a yogi was like, hey, maybe you should try Ayurveda because I had um, really chronic migraines, like severe migraines since childhood. And I would be in bed sick for days. And so I remember he took me in his car. It was like an ex-boyfriend and he took me in his car. I was like literally passed out. And I show up at this Ayurvedic doctor's office and, um, yeah, Dr. Kumar, and he really healed me and helped me like just cleanse so much, so many um, doshas, so many impurities from my body. And I remember just feeling like, wow, I really want to know more about Ayurveda. And um, that really set me on my journey. But yeah, these, these systems of healing all have a root in the Vedas. 
And I love how you put this. You said Ayurveda can help us understand ourselves, heal our emotions and our bodies and realize our purpose and our dharma. Mm-hmm. I think, A, for someone who's never heard of it or maybe has heard about it a little bit because they've dabbled in yoga or some Eastern philosophy mm-hmm. uh, that might resonate with, but can you expand on why you think it's so powerful still now and applicable to daily life now? Absolutely. So what's really amazing about Ayurveda is it's really a journey back home, back to ourselves. And one way that Vedic thought in general differentiates itself from more Judeo-Christian thought is there's this belief that we are already whole. We are a spark of cosmic consciousness. We are divine. And this spark is called Prakriti. And Prakriti also means nature. So we all have our own unique Prakriti. It's like our energetic signature. It's our DNA. And our Prakriti is is a combination of the Pancha Mahabhutas or the five great elements, ether, air, fire, water, and earth. And then these make up the three common doshas in Ayurveda, Vata, Pitta, and Kapha. And so we all have our own unique Um, balance of these doshas. And what Ayurveda is about is bringing us back home, back to our balance by understanding ourselves. Because what what happens is the doshas start to go out of balance. Like a lot of people um, live a very vata and pitta provoking lifestyle, or like running around and like always doing, always trying to achieve. It's very like rajasic or in the mode of passion. So it's like a way to kind of bring it back in and ground and cool the mind and come back to self, come back home to self, as opposed to looking outside of ourselves for for external validation and for healing. It's really a journey of coming back home to the self. I have clients who come with an array of complaints. Some of these are more mental, like anxiety, depression. Some of these are like insomnia, a lot of digestive issues. And what I try to do is help them find the root of their ailment the root. And then we pacify the dosha through lifestyle and through diet and through mantra, through pranayama. And it's really a holistic way to heal as opposed to just like, oh, I have anxiety. Here's a pill. It's like, no, like we're taking into consideration the entirety of the individual and everybody's different. Everybody has their own backstory. Everybody has their own things that have happened to them in their lives, you know, and that's what really differentiates Ayurveda from modern medicine is we look at the whole individual and try to find the root cause of the illness and eradicate that as opposed to just like having a blanket remedy. Yeah. Instead of treating the symptoms, right? Exactly. Yeah. So someone can get a hold of you, but if they are looking for an Ayurvedic counselor, how do you know that you're getting someone who is well-trained and um, that you can trust? That's such a good question. And it's, you know, Ayurveda is a field that is not like fully regulated yet in the United States. It, It comes from India. And in India, there are a lot of Ayurvedic doctors and they all have their own different lineages. But if you're working with someone who's from India, if you somehow go to India or come across someone, I would look for someone who has a BAMPS. It's a Bachelor of Arts of Um, Ayurvedic medicine. But in the United States, the best authoritating body is called NAMA, the National Association of Ayurvedic Medicine. And or no, the National Ayurvedic Medical Association. Um, And they're the most legitimate. And so all of the practitioners who are certified with NAMA are board certified. 
and they're going to be the best because there are some programs out there where it's like, oh, you're an Ayurvedic something or other and like, but they're not as, as um, legitimate. So definitely check out the NAMA website. And you can also say like, if you want to find a practitioner in your local area, you can also put like, oh, I live in Los Angeles, California. I'm looking for a practitioner. If you want to go see someone face-to-face. You also seem to be passionate about the food aspect of this. You have recipes on your site. And when I was at Kripalu, it was one of the quickest ways that I actually felt the difference of the philosophy in my body eating to my specific balance. Can you talk, do you do a lot of that kind of counseling as well? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first things we look at um, when I see a patient is their diet, because the diet actually, it's really a reflection of how we're living our lives in our internal world. And what we often see is if someone is out of balance, like say they have too much vata, they're usually eating foods that provoke vata. So for example, um, something that would provoke vata is like a very cold salad, And a lot of people love to have a cold salad because it's super refreshing. But what happens is the the salad has qualities that make vata more intense. So it's rough, it's cold, it's dry, it's subtle. So if we're eating food that is going to exacerbate our illness, then it's it's this simple concept of like increases like. So what we want to do for someone who say has a vata imbalance, which can manifest as you know anxiety, it can manifest as constipation, insomnia, multiple sclerosis, so many things. We want to see what are some opposite qualities we can bring in. So for vata, what's really good is really unctuous, oily foods. Like it's so good to have healthy fats like ghee, avocado, olive oil, coconut oil, really well-cooked, runny, well-spiced foods. And this counteracts the vata in the body. So yeah, we look at the client, what they're eating and what their complaints are and try to balance through the diet. I think it's important, like a lot of times people will say like, oh, is this Ayurvedic? Like I'm having a pizza. It's so not Ayurvedic. And it's like, okay, yeah, maybe a pizza is not like the ultimate Ayurvedic food, but like it could be a comfort food. It could be something that really nourishes you. Maybe you've had a really intense week or a hard day and maybe pizza is exactly what you need. So it's really about tapping into the body with love and giving the body what it's truly craving, not what it's craving, like as a mask for something else. You talked about how it's important to live yoga off the mat. That's one of the most important things for me is the, is the philosophy of it. Um, so mm-hmm. I know I have my own beliefs, but why do you think the philosophy is so important today? And why do you teach it? You know, the philosophy is really so crucial. And I think that the asana is really just the tip of the iceberg. These asana postures are beautiful. And what they do is they put our body in sacred shapes that open up the chakras, they open up the nadis or the energy centers. And so we can be more receptive. But the whole point of the asana is to sit in sukhasana and meditate on the divine. 
So it's really important that we cultivate an internal scope of awareness off the mat as well and really bring this practice of equanimity, this practice of trying to be in sattva or the mode of truthfulness, this practice of ahimsa, what we really see in the yamas and the niyamas and the other aspects of yoga really give us guidelines on how to live our lives and how to be a yogi in all aspects because it's not separate. Yoga literally means to yoke comes from huge, it means to yoke. And it's life is about creating yoga in every moment. Where do you teach philosophy? Most recently, I've been teaching through the Bhakti Center. They're a yoga center in New York City. So um, once or twice a year, I teach a Bhagavad Gita course. I just finished my most recent um, class last month, and that was a 12-week course. And so we dove super deep into the Bhagavad Gita. Um, we didn't go chapter by chapter because it's 18 chapters, but we we went really deep into it. And that's really beautiful because we get to you know slowly digest it because it's a really big text and it can be a little overwhelming. And we have group discussions, which is my favorite part is um, when the group shares their reflections. And then I also teach uh, privately, I teach one-on-one. So I do like Gita-centered counseling, spiritual counseling. And then I have my own classes. So like right now, um, I haven't launched it yet, but I'm designing a course on living the eight limbs of yoga. So it will be like a group counseling on how we can apply yoga in our daily lives. I think the Bhagavad Gita is one of the most essential texts at least that's important to me right now what's Mm -hmm. one of the central themes that you think is important to us and could resonate with modern day society you know um there are so many in the Gita and it's so rich with themes but I would say one of the most important is the teaching that we are not the body and that we are a spirit soul and why this is so deeply important is because when we're born, we're born um, just connected to everyone. We're like we don't have what's called the ahamkara or the sense of false ego or the sense of separation. And to a certain extent, a little bit of ahamkara or false ego is good because it helps me say like, okay, you're Lindsay, I'm Hana. You know, like we have we have boundaries, like healthy boundaries. But what happens as we go through material life is we start to attach too many things to our ego. We start to say like, I'm a woman. I'm a yoga teacher, I'm from California. And like that starts to create a sense of separation. And we start to identify with our bodies and um, the world that we're living in is really designed also to take us out of our internal world and make us associate with our bodies. Like if we look around today, it's like everybody's, there's still issues with racism, country. In our country, there's all these like political ideologies and it's so, so divisive. So the Gita teaches that we're the soul, we're this beautiful spark of divinity and consciousness. And that's what it means when we say namaste. It's saying like, I am offering my, my prayers to you as another soul, another spark of divinity. And that's what unites all of us. And to remember that everything is temporary. You know, we're, um, we're in this body now, but the body changes over time. But what stays eternal is our soul. And that's really what's guiding us. We just have to learn to listen. When you say that the Bhagavad Gita is teaching us to give up attachment to success and failure, what do you mm-hmm. mean by that? 
Yeah, this is another big teaching from the Gita, which is when people first hear, they're like, wow, like what? Like, how can I, how can I give up attachment to success? Like, that's what, that's what um, the world is about, right? Like is, is being successful. So what the Gita is teaching here is that we want to be non-dual. We want to transcend good and bad, pleasure, pain, hot, cold, success, failure, because inherently in life, there's going to be ups and downs. And we want to find an anchor that's deep, that's so much deeper than the waves, that's as deep as the ocean floor. So as success and failure come, we can just see it as a fluctuation in our life. And we don't attach our identity or our ego to this success. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be successful. Like say if someone really wants to become a doctor, they should, they should do that because that's their dharma and it's important to work hard to achieve your dharma and be in your dharma. But at the end of the day, it's about knowing that I'm a spirit soul and the success, while I maybe achieved it, it isn't me. And what gave me the faculty to achieve the success is something divine. It's Lord Krishna, which means all attractive. And Krishna possesses all opulence, all intelligence. And so the spark of divinity is within everyone. And we're just vehicles that are accessing this. Let's talk about um, karma, because I think it's a very misunderstood concept. And you brought it up as something that you were passionate about talking about. So let's kind of define karma. Do you think a lot of people misunderstand karma as well? I do. I think people do misunderstand karma. I actually made a post on my Instagram recently about karma and I got some like messages from people being like, oh my gosh, this is like so airy fairy. This is like so esoteric, like this is BS and, and all of that. And I was like, I always find that interesting because what karma really is, is it's just the law of action and reaction. It's actually very scientific and very simple. So it's whatever we do in our lives, we're kind of creating that and bringing that back into our lives. Whatever we meditate on or focus our attention on, we attract that. And it's also a way to sort of understand our circumstances. So if we're experiencing, say, a pattern in our lives over and over again, maybe there's a karmic lesson there, you know, or if we're seeing that there's some inequality, oftentimes there, there's a karmic implication going on as well. So we're really empowered when we can understand that something might be our karma to take action. And that's what Krishna wanted Arjuna to do in the Gita is to take action, to understand that he has this karma, he has this duty as a warrior to fight in the battle, but ultimately he gets to decide. He has the free will and we can actually change our karma by surrendering to something that's beyond us by surrendering to God and, and being in that sense of center. And the more we do that, the more our karma actually is mitigated and dissipates and we create our own reality. One of the things when I read the Gita, I was like, he's supposed to fight. What is this about Ahimsa where he is supposed to go into battle and do this? Do you feel what's the lesson there with nonviolence, but him still having this duty to be a warrior? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's one of those dualities and it's such a deep aspect of the Gita. I'm so glad you brought it up. Arjuna, he really represents us. He's the collective soul. And what this is about is Arjuna is a warrior. He's a Kshatriya. And the Dharma or the duty of a Kshatriya is to protect 
and in this instance was to fight because the war that happened was unjust and he had to protect his kinsmen. And he was so identified with the people on the other side of the battle, like his guru, his friends, his teachers were on the other side. And Krishna reminds him, these because of the law of karma, these people are actually already dead in the sense that like, like they've already um, sown their karma, you know, or they've, they've already created their own karma. So all you need to do here is really execute it. But it's not about the results. It's about you doing what you're meant to do. And ahimsa, yes, it means nonviolence. But in this instance, in the Gita, it would have been more violent for Arjuna to act contrary to his duty as a warrior, because then he wouldn't have been upholding the laws of truth. Okay, could you share one personal story about a pivotal point on your yogic path? Oh my gosh, um, that is such a good question. Hmm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so many, right? I, think I mean, I know that there's many because it's a long path. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I think what I will say is, um, for a while, I really wanted to be kind of strict and adhere to a specific path and to a specific guru and a specific lineage. And that really served me for some time. And within that, there were more rules, more rules to follow. Um, they're called like regulative principles. And after a while, I started feeling like I didn't necessarily need the rules as much as I needed to anymore. And it was really important to me to forge my own path and to celebrate really what my heart is desiring and what my heart wants to connect to and the different spiritual paths that I wanted to learn about. So something that's been really profound for me just in recent years is letting every day and every moment and every experience be part of my practice, really integrating everything, celebrating everything I love because Ultimately, like we can only walk our own paths. And for me, it's been really important to not let someone else tell me how to do that, but really do it from a, a space of integrity and from, from my heart. And so not to be so chaste or rigid to a specific lineage. And that has been very liberating. And, and what it's actually done is it's actually made me appreciate the lineage that I was in more. Um, like I teach these Gita courses um, that are connected to a Vaishnava Hare Krishna lineage. And even though I'm less strict now, my heart feels so much more connected and it's so much more integrated. So I don't know if that, if that really answers the question, but that, that shift in consciousness has been really beautiful for me. Thank you so much to Hana for her time and expertise on the podcast today. If you like what we're doing, like us, share us, because good things don't last unless you support them. I hope I see you in two weeks, yogis. Take care.